Super 70 Sports Podcast. Oh, hell yeah. Ah, welcome to the Super 70 Sports Podcast. I'm Ricky Cobb, and my guest this week should be familiar to listeners of this podcast because with this episode, he becomes the most frequent podcast guest in the history of the Super 70 Sports Podcast. And I want to get right to it today because he has a new book that is one of those special books. If you'll go back and think throughout your life, those moments when you're in the bookstore and you happen upon a book and you flip through a couple of pages and you immediately know that you must buy it and it's going to become a cherished item in your book collection. Well, the book that my guest today has written certainly falls into that category for me. I'm a little bit jealous that I didn't write this book myself, but uh, believe me, we are all better off that this subject matter poured from the mind and from the pen of this man who is the absolute most qualified individual I can think of to write a book about the history of baseball uniforms. Joining me now on the Super 70 Sports Hotline, the man who created the current visual identities of the Los Angeles Angels and the Washington Nationals, among dozens of other accomplishments that he's made in the world of professional sports design. And now he's an author of the brilliant new book, Winning Ugly, A Visual History of the Most Bizarre Baseball Uniforms Ever Worn. Welcome back to the podcast, Mr. Todd Radom. Todd, how are you? Ricky, it is a pleasure to be back with you. Thank you so much. Well, I'm thrilled to have you back on. It's It's been too long. I think it's been a couple of years since you've been on the podcast, so we can't let it get away from us uh, like that again. But w- what a great reason to have you on the podcast today, because I have to tell you, your new book, Winning Ugly, absolutely in my wheelhouse, after my own heart, the book that I always wanted to find on a bookshelf somewhere, and now it has made its way into my personal library, and I could not be more thrilled. So tell me about what inspired you to write this book, and what it was like to go back through the most bizarre baseball uniforms that have ever been worn. Well, I mean, in a certain sense, this book has been uh, within me for perhaps my entire life. Uh, I've said this before, uh, and I think this it, it bears repeating in this case. I've been observing the visual culture of sports, particularly baseball, since I was a little kid. And, uh, you know, I am a child of the 70s, so much of what's in this book uh, is from that era, and we'll touch on that. But uh, when you combine that with my professional, uh, you know, my professional life, everything kind of like comes together toward this. Um, the genesis of the book really lies not only in that deep background, but uh, in the fact that the New York Times came to me and asked me to write an opinion piece uh, in April of last year, uh, which basically was about ugly baseball uniforms. They came to the right guy. <laughs> and 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 that became this. So this is a very expanded version of of that. But I mean, there's a, there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of nuance in this book that that goes beyond my my appreciation and love and knowledge for all of these wonderful disasters. Well, I, I would tell you that I was ordinarily I would be jealous that somebody else wrote this book. But when I knew that you were the guy writing it, I, I, you know, I have to step back and say, okay, this was the perfect guy to write this book. And I think that that's proven out through the, through the pages of the book. And, and, and Todd, you know that I'm itching to get into the 1970s and 1980s, but uh, we, we can't bypass the, the long and textured history uh, of the game and baseball uniforms leading up to that. We've got about a century of Major League Baseball uniform history that predates uh, what you call the, the golden age of ugly baseball uniforms. Take me through some of the, the uniform milestones through the years, both good and bad, maybe that uh, eventually led us to the uh, winning ugly era? Well, I think that that, uh, in the book, I kick things 
things off with uh, really an examination of the baseball uniform itself and how it came to be. And the roots of the uniform, as we know it, lie uh, with the Cincinnati Red Stockings of the late 1860s, the first professional baseball team. Um, and, you know, they, they popularized a look that, again, you know, it, 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 we, they would be very familiar with what we're looking at today for the most part. But between the Red Stockings of uh, 1869, say, and the Arizona Diamondbacks of 2016, um, there were several notable <laughs> milestones along this long and winding, meandering road. And, um, you know, one of the things that I knew, but, but the research for the book really confirmed it for me, was the fact that people have been uh, opining on, on the looks of their favorite teams for really, uh, you know, since the, the genesis of the professional game. Um, I think a couple of things stand out for me to answer your question. Uh, in the 1880s, there was a period of experimentation with color uh, that, that really just, uh, just kind of blew me away. We think of the distant past uh, in monochrome, in black and white. It's stiff. But uh, there was a team, for instance, the uh, Baltimore Club of the uh, National Association, the first professional league before the, the National League, uh, they wore uh, a uniform that consisted of yellow pants, white shirts, white hats, and uh, a quote from a newspaper in Chicago, ugly-looking black, black and yellow stockings. <laughs> Just this sartorial disaster. There was, there was a lot of color uh, in the 1880s. Uh, some of the some of the combinations were just you know scorchingly amazing, and then things kind of settled down to a uh, a slumbering time in the in the 90s and and uh, early 1900s. But um, I do talk about the 1901 Baltimore Orioles, and uh, it's really hard to imagine. I actually illustrated it because there are no you know clearly no color photos from this from this era, but. Um, they wore some pretty amazing uniforms with black pants and black shirts and yellow, bright yellow trim. Pretty remarkable stuff. So, I, I, you know, one of the photos in the book that I love, and I, I, I can't remember the team. I, I want to say it was St. Louis back in the 1870s. There's a wonderful photo you have in there of these guys just kind of lounging around in this sort of Greek <laughs> uh, motif that they had going with their uniforms. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This was actually the 1876 St. Louis Brown Stockings, charter member of the National League, and uh, they are wearing these very tight, uh, collarless jerseys with a Greek key motif, kind of like you might see on a, 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 car, a blue and white coffee cup in New York City. They've got the uh, motif extends to the belts, and as you said, they are lounging around on high Victorian furniture, looking for all the world like they are... Uh, they're 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 uh, enjoying an afternoon of drinking, or I have no idea. But they are weird, weird uniforms to say the least. Um, it's not on the field of play. They're not wearing caps in this particular photo, but it's a really surprising look. How would you characterize the period of time? Let's say the thirty years or so leading into the early seventies. Maybe going back to the thirties, the forties, the fifties, the sixties. How would you, if you, if you had to sum it up kind of quickly, what was happening uniform-wise during that three- to four-decade period? Well, really, you know, the 30s, of course, we, we overlap with, uh, with the Great Depression and a need to reach out and promote the game in ways that it had never been promoted. Um, Larry McPhail, who I, I reference in the book, was, uh, of course, one of baseball's greatest innovators. He, he introduced night baseball to the major leagues with the Reds in 1935. But uh, he was also responsible for what we now know as the, the uh, Dodgers uniforms. The Dodgers had worn green uh, in 1937 for one year only. Uh, you know, he was responsible for them moving to the classic Dodgers script rendered in royal blue. There were some really interesting uniforms here and there in the 30s. There were some, some boring uniforms as well. But, of course, World War II occurs, and we hit this kind of period of very, very conservative classic looks, no question about it. But we had some satin uniforms along the way for night games. 
And then, you know, the 50s, the Willie Mickey and the Duke era, you know, characterized by, again, I think these just classic baseball uniforms. Little green shoots of experimentation start to uh, come up through the ground when Charlie Finley purchases the Kansas City Athletics. And uh, as you say, uh, you know, the early 1960s, the, the world is changing following the assassination of JFK. You look at the larger picture, the Beatles change our popular culture. And colorful baseball uniforms start to come on the scene, a reaction to uh, more modern marketing methods, I would say, and also the advent of television and eventually color television. And, and Charlie Finley, as you go into in the book, really deserves, uh, depending on how somebody wants to look at it, the, the credit or the blame, I guess, for the, the departure from tradition in, in many respects. Yeah, I mean, I think a lot of people would uh, would argue the fact that Charlie Finley uh, should be in the Baseball Hall of Fame as a, uh, a builder of that dynastic franchise that won back-to-back-to-back World Series titles. But his introduction of color to the majors in 1963 with the Kansas City A's before they moved to Oakland really broke the mold. Prior to then, uh, baseball is awash in a sea of navy blue and red and, you know, uh, gray on the road, white at home, a couple of clubs with pinstripes. Uh, again, for the classicists among us, it was a, a pretty uh, beautiful-looking era, but he introduces uh, uniforms which absolutely blow the whole thing wide open in 63, and uh, after that, uh, the, the Chicago White Sox uh, um, break out their powder blue road uniforms in flannel in 1964, and uh, there's a trickle of, uh, of color that comes after that. And, of course, the whole thing just blows sky high in the early 1970s. All right. So let's, let's get to what I said earlier. You refer to in the book as the golden age of ugly baseball uniforms, 1972 to 1986. We're talking about pullover jerseys, uh, uh, elastic waistbands, double knit uniforms, uh, various different uh, little bells and whistles that we hadn't really seen before. How do you think that the game got to this sort of tipping point where from the late 60s, even though we were seeing some changes, uh, all of a sudden it's 1972, 1973, 1974, and the game just diverges wildly from uniform tradition. What was going on there where this became something that basically virtually every team uh, in in one respect or another with a few exceptions uh, did something that they you know you couldn't have foreseen only a few short years before well I think a couple of things happened simultaneously this was like this perfect storm that that, uh, provided us this wonderful gift that you and I both love so very much uh, a few things. Number one, uh, again, the, the, the advent of color TV and a more sophisticated take on the marketing of the game loosened some things up. But most importantly, the uh, switch from flannel uniforms, the traditional baggy flannels that, that uh, date back to uh, the very inception of the game, um, flannels were, were uh, very, very quickly replaced with more modern um, synthetic and especially double knit fabrics. In 1970, the Pittsburgh Pirates uh, opened up Three River Stadium in the middle of the season, and the night that that uh, took place, they trotted out onto the field with uh, with brand new uniforms. Middle of the season, and these uniforms, uh, of course, that probably most of your listeners are familiar with, featured no buttons. They featured no belts. And they represented a departure from the traditions of a hundred years back. Um, and really, what happened was the, these new synthetic fabrics uh, allowed for uh, for uh, a brighter range of colors. Uh, it also, you know, the, the elimination of buttons really liberated the the canvas, if you want to look at it that way, of the baseball jersey towards something far more expansive. Um, we're no longer encumbered by interruptions uh, in decoration. For instance, think about the fact that uh, in 1977, a couple of years afterwards, those original Blue Jays uniforms, which I absolutely love, uh, you know, which had the, the, the Blue Jay logo, the, the head of the bird, 
right there on the belly. You couldn't have done that with buttons going straight down the middle. And I think society itself was changing. In the book, I quote the uh, manager of the Atlanta Braves, uh, Loma Harris, who uh, said something, in fact, that, that uh, mod was the, the word these days. And he mentions the fact that he was personally wearing clothes off the field of play that he wouldn't have been caught dead in a couple of years before. That's true. I mean, it, it mirrored uh, society. In fact, the a lot of the baseball uniforms, even the ones that are more garish, were um, that might have been the most conservative outfit that some of these guys wore during the entire day, right? I mean... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, think about platform shoes and, you know, I, I, we could go right down the line, but uh, think about what, uh, what we know what the world looked like, say, in, uh, I don't know, 1966. Uh, what Americans were uh, were wearing, what haircuts looked like, and how everything really, really changed in the ensuing five, six, seven, eight years. And of course, as you and I know, the 70s were the weirdest decade. Uh, we look at our popular culture, our politics, our fashion, um, pet rocks, all kinds of bizarre stuff going on. So why should America's pastime not reflect all of those dynamics? All right, Todd, I've got some, some bullet points written down here in front of me, and so I want to hit some of my own personal interest of, of uniforms in the 70s and 80s and some things that are that are notable. So this is going to be a little bit of a hodgepodge. Um, I, I wanted to ask you about some of the monochrome uniforms that we witnessed in the 70s. I, know, I guess uh, Baltimore, uh, with the, the solid orange uniforms that I suppose were... Brooks Robinson uh, influenced. Well, wasn't it Brooks's company or whatever that made those? But that that solid uh, orange uniform that they rolled out uh, was it seventy one, Todd? That they that they wore those? Yep, in that's right. In September seventy one, the Orioles introduced an orange uniform, all orange, uh, top to top to uh, bottom. I think they still had black caps at that point. But you're right, Ricky, the, the uh, Orioles' uh, uh, great third baseman Hall of Famer, Brooks Robinson, was part owner of a sporting goods company in Baltimore, and uh, that was the company that manufactured these wonderful uh, grease-fired disasters. Um, but they were really something. Um, I believe the story was that they intended to wear them, uh, uh, I have to look in the book, but continually on the road for the rest of the season, but they really elicited quite a reaction. There's that great Sports Illustrated cover uh, that I'm sure you know about with uh, with the Orioles pitching the the, the, the four uh, the four great pitchers, yep. and they are clad head to toe in this flaming orange. And uh, they wore them a handful of times. They wore them, I think, a couple of times the following season. But then they bit the dust. There were some very strong reactions to them. Now, the, now the Cleveland Indians. Uh, took, if, you, if you thought orange was was interesting in full full body head to toe, Cleveland uh, up the ante with the solid red. Yes, and as I discuss in the book, Boog Powell, very large, large man, uh, had the unique distinction of having worn both of those combinations <laughs> uh, with the with the Orioles in seventy uh, one, and then he goes to the Indians as a DH. And uh, I believe it was Mark Belanger who said, that's the, the biggest Bloody Mary I ever saw. Um, I talk about this in the book. You know, color, color is something not to be trifled with for us designers. You have to use it judiciously. A little bit can go a long way. And in the case of these very bright, bright hues, um, they stand out for their audacity. Uh, well, we should have learned, a lesson should have been learned with those with those Cleveland uniforms. And yet... The Phillies in 1979 uh, had what I guess is referred to now as the Saturday Night Specials, the, uh, the red, solid, well, burgundy, I guess, solid uh, uniforms with the white stripe uh, going down the sides that they were going to bring out uh, as alternates, and that lasted all of one game. <laughs> yeah, that's right. I mean, they had a couple of problems. And listen, you know, aesthetics are uh, a very subjective thing, but uh, form and function need to come together, and the fact of the matter was that these uniforms were uh, were disastrous in certain respects. Uh, the, the functional part of it, uh, look at it this way, uh, just think about what the artificial turf 
a veteran stadium look like. Think about the lighting in that place. Think about the fact that black and white was the uh, printing method of newspapers. The Internet of the day, as I like to call newspapers. And uh, these uniforms were just not visible. Uh, really, the, 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 you, you look at wire photos of, of this one game, and you just see the white stripes and the, and the, uh, and, and the, the numbers. There, were, there was no contrast involved. Additionally, uh, they were horribly sized. The players absolutely hated them. Dick Ruthven's jersey was misspelt. His last name was misspelt. And uh, here, too, you know, the reaction was harsh and swift, and the Phillies uh, eliminated them after that one single game. And uh, I believe they sold them to the public as a set for $200 each with the proceeds going to charity. There's one copy of a jersey in the Baseball Hall of Fame in Cooperstown, and uh, it really stands out in its ugliness, quite frankly. <laughs> well, I think it was I think it was Larry Christensen that told me that, uh, uh, that he, somebody said, I don't know if Greg Luzinski said this himself, or it was probably somebody else who observed this, but they told him he looked like a tomato. Uh, you know, it, it, these jerseys were, it, well, 70s and 80s jerseys in general were kind of bad news for the plus size guys, right? Not very, oh, not very generous. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, you know, the Rick Russells of the world, and I actually do discuss it in the book, uh, Don Zimmer, who uh, was, you know, a major league player for enough years. We think of him as the kindly, portly, older version of Don Zimmer. But uh, in uh, the early 70s, he, is, he becomes a manager of the San Diego Padres. He is in his 40s, but maybe he's got a little bit of a pot belly going on there. And uh, the Padres at that point are wearing all yellow from top to bottom, and that is quite a look. And if you're Dave Winfield, who, uh, as I say, looked great in every uniform that he ever wore, uh, you, it's one thing, but if you are, if you are a uh, manager, Don Zimmer, or if you're Rick Russell or some of the other large uh, large and tall men that we've referenced um uh, this look had the potential to be not such a flattering thing right, well let, let's talk about alternates because i in the in the modern era i kind of bemoan how i feel like some teams have maybe kind of gotten carried away a little bit with alternates baseball is is probably not as bad about it as the nba but the, there's a wonderful illustration in your book of willie stargell uh, wearing the various combinations that the pirates were able to derive from their their black uh, uniforms, their yellow uniforms, and their their uh, <laughs> glorious pinstripe uniforms, and I think that's one of my favorite things in the book. Now it worked for the pirates, I, I, I think, uh, at that time. But did the did the pirates unwittingly uh, unleash? Uh, the alternate uh, jerseys on us there to to the point that uh, we can't put the toothpaste back in the tube. <laughs> well, the Pirates of the late seventies and early eighties were uh, sort of the Oregon Ducks of their day, if you want to look at it that way. <laughs> yes. um, alternate jerseys really have been around since the the earliest days of the game, the eighteen uh, eighties. I talk about uh, uh, some alternate jerseys that the Cincinnati Reds wore. But, uh, you know, and, and you had alternate jerseys going on in the uh, 20s and the 30s and 40s, um, but the Pirates really made a science out of it. They threw the, the whole script out the window with this mix-and-match combination of, of uh, the two different headwear, black and yellow, with those wonderful pill-block box caps with the stripes, and the combinations were unbelievable. I cannot, somewhere, we, we need to, you and I need to uh, speak to somebody from those Pirates clubs. I, I quote Jerry Royce. Maybe we can reach out to him. And uh, I want to know what the equipment manager of the club had to deal with going on road trips with these things and how these uniforms were who decided what to what to wear. But uh, yeah, I mean, the Pirates really took it to uh, to a whole nother level with all of these different combos. Yeah, I, I hope that he was appropriately compensated. Because he had a different gig than just about every other guy uh, in the other clubhouses. I, I, you know, the, for me, the 1970s uniforms, the the bell of the ball is uh, is the Houston Astros. Uh, the tequila sunrise is is my preferred uh, term for those. Uh, other people uh, use the somewhat less uh, flowery rainbow guts uh, uniforms, but everybody knows those Houston Astros. Uh, uniforms from the 1970s, and there still are, are a lot of collegiate teams that are wearing uniforms that are uh, inspired by that. Uh, what's the story 
of the Tequila Sunrise, Astros uniforms. What kind of hard drugs uh, uh, was somebody doing <laughs> to, to introduce this? Because even for the 1970s, that was really out there. Without question, and I say in the book, April 7th, 1975 was the date that the ugly baseball uniform achieved its apotheosis because uh, that was the first time that these uniforms were worn in a game. If the, if the Pirates, a few years later, you know, threw out the whole script, the Astros, uh, wearing the same uniform, both at home on the road for all 162 games, and this is a pretty revolutionary thing, numbers on the pants, um, I think they're the most distinctive uniforms in the history of Major League Baseball. Um, and if you really think about it, I, I'm, I am personally uh, drawn to uniforms and logos that reflect the dynamics of their particular community. And to me, the Astros uniforms of this era reflect the Houston of, of, of uh you know, of the era. Weather be damned. They built a, 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 a stadium and put a roof on it, and uh, man defeats God in that sense, right? They are drilling for oil at a breakneck pace. They're creating this, this place uh, that, that just, you know, the, the, the economy is, is humming along. The audacity of these uniforms, I feel, reflects a time and place uh, like no other. They were created uh, by McCann Erickson, a big advertising agency. Judge Roy Hoffheins, who owned the Houston Astros, hatched the idea for the for the Astrodome. Um, a man who thought big thoughts, and clearly these uniforms just dovetail perfectly with the with the franchise and with the dynamics of the city at that time. All right, now people are going to strangle me if I if I don't mention this one, but everybody loves to talk about, even though this only happened over a three-day period, everybody loves to talk about the White Sox and their shorts in 1976. What is the story with that? Is that is that just pure Bill Veck shenanigans, or what happened there? Because that one stands alone. Yeah, I think that you make a pretty good point here. Bill Veck, who, of course, was the greatest promoter in the history of the game of baseball, uh, that's referenced on his plaque at the Hall of Fame in Cooperstown. There's a photo in the book of him with uh, several White Sox coaches unveiling this look in uh, early 1976. And, uh, you know, they're, they're, they're the floppy collared jerseys, the what they called clam digger pants, the tube socks, basically, eliminating stirrups. But it's the shorts that everybody remembers. And, Ricky, as you said, they were worn only for, uh, I, I believe, four times in the summer of 76. They kept threatening to wear them, and then finally they wore them in August of that year, twice in a, in a uh, it was all in the month of August, as I said. I think it was just Vec being Vec, personally. Um, you know, we're talking about it all these years later, and yet they were worn for a total of, I, think, I forget what I say, something like 39 innings. <laughs> well, oh wow! Well, well, those those uniforms. Uh, let's let's just set the shorts aside for a second. Those uniforms that they were wearing, even with long pants, because they they uh, weren't wearing stirrups. They just had the striped socks, the untucked collared jerseys. You know, I, I still I've been very clear on Twitter. I still want to punch Chris Sale because I went to a White Sox game, whatever it was, two years ago because they were going to be wearing those uh, uniforms for just the second time in the last 35-plus uh, years. And I was at the other game, and uh, you know that, that's a moment for me here in Chicago. I'm going to that game, and Chris Sale loses his mind and cuts up the jerseys and robbed 40,000 people, well, maybe 30,000 people, of uh, magic. Because the, those, those uniforms are just, and, and I don't know, did he have a point? Todd, do you want to, do you want to defend him? He said that it affected the way that he pitched. Is he being a snowflake there, or is is is, is that a? I, I think he was. I think he was because if I'm not mistaken, uh, did they not wear them once before the prior season? They did. They did. I was there. I think uh, I you know maybe Carlos Rodon pitched that day. I don't recall him crying. Yes. You know so. <laughs> They, they won yeah, the game, and, too. You know, the, the, yeah, you know, our athletes can be can be a little sensitive. They like routines. They they uh, you know they feel certain 
certain ways about the cuts of their uniforms without question, but yeah, I think he was being a, a little bit overly sensitive. Listen, these uniforms for, you know, for all of their weirdness, and they were very, very weird. I mean, throw out the shorts part, right? The fact that they were untucked, the fact that they had these floppy collars, the fact that they had these, uh, you know, navy blue pants, white tops, uh, you know, at one point, and then a, an all monochrome look on the road, all navy blue. Um, they were weird. They also wore white undershirts when they were first introduced, which led to this uh, pissing match, essentially, between Billy Martin and the White Sox, which was uh, led to a protest at the commissioner's office. Billy didn't like the fact that the, uh, the white sleeves on, on pitchers, the ball was not coming out of those very cleanly for, for the batters, if you can imagine. So uh, they cut up, uh, cut up the, uh, forced them to cut the, the sleeves off, uh, and I, I believe what happened was the uh, Bill Beck billed George Steinbrenner eighteen dollars or something like that for <laughs> two undershirts. <laughs> All right, now now here's one that I've just always really liked from the from the 1970s, and this one did not have a particularly uh, long tenure, but we're never going to forget it because I'm referring to the uniforms that the Braves wore when Hank Aaron hit number seven fifteen. And I, I've always thought, and you go into it uh, in the book, I've always thought that that was a really, really sharp, interesting look that the, the Braves had there in the mid-70s. Yeah, absolutely. And, and you know, if you, if you look at all of the weirdness of the era and the experimentation that's taking place, the Braves look, and of course, you know, it gets the Hank Aaron halo effect, right? Because right. it's this... this Singularly great, great moment. But the look itself is a pretty refined one. Um, you know, it's characterized by some bold blocks of color, but there are not a ton of outlines or shadows or garish, you know, anything going on. And um, yeah, it was a very short lived look, no question about it. Um, at one point uh, prior to the, the, uh, the 74 season, they actually wore these kind of Henley tops with a couple of a couple of buttons. I have a great photo in the book of it um, before they became straight pullovers. But, um, yeah, I mean, I, I spoke uh, spoke with the designer uh, a couple of years ago um, who was the, the creative director for the Braves at that time, and he really took a, a pretty holistic approach to reinventing the baseball uniform. He respected the traditions, but he thought about uh, television. He thought about, again, these big, bold blocks of color, and uh, he told me something that really surprised me. He said that uh, his vision was to have these uniforms for the Braves when, when he designed them be uh, red as opposed to royal blue. Um, they produced some prototypes. I think it was Eddie Matthews and Hank Aaron come out on the field at Fulton County Stadium. Hank Aaron says to him, uh, the Braves are blue, we're not red. And boom, they became blue. But uh, it was a good look. I really think so. With those those feathers on the sleeves, a very signature aesthetic for that franchise. And again, you know, Hank makes everything better, right? Absolutely, uh, and and good call by Hank there on the blue. I, I think the red would have been interesting, probably. But I I really love the 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 way that that uniform set turned out. I I wanted to ask you about expansion in '69. And if you think that in any respect may have kind of contributed to the to the tipping point that we were talking about earlier, because I think of the expansion teams of 69, Kansas City had a very classic look, but you've got you've got the Padres who hadn't gone crazy yet by any means, but they're introducing brown which for the first time in a long time, that's a, that's a primary color for a team. You've got the pilots with the kind of their uniforms were, were, were basic, but they had the, the scrambled eggs on the, on the bill of the cap, which was kind of crazy and still looks kind of crazy uh, when you look back at photos of that. And then maybe especially you had the Expos pinwheel caps, which uh, were so eye-catching and, 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 and still are. Um, and, and we'll talk about this in, in a bit, but like even jumping ahead to the 90s, I, I think about the, the expansion teams in the early 90s and, and the late 90s and how expansion teams just inherently seem like sometimes they take chances that other teams may, may not be as eager to take. I mean, you've got a, an absolutely clean slate. You've got no history. You've got a w reservoir of goodwill uh, among your fan base. 
uh, because, you know, we're, we've got this wonderful new toy, and you have license to experiment. I think in the case of, you know, and you, you outlined it pretty well, you know, the, the Royals came out of the box looking like a club in 1969. Uh, a, an American League version of the Dodgers is how I describe them, and there's really nothing wrong with that whatsoever. Uh, the pilots, who actually wanted to wear gold belt buckles, sort of like actual pilots wore, uh, all of their weirdness was pretty well co- uh, confined to the build of their caps, and of course they only lasted one season. But uh, the Padres were a pretty conservative look, um, and the Expos are a whole other deal. But keep in mind the fact that uh, these uniforms were still uh, made of flannel at that time. It was before the polyester revolution occurred. So uh, it was right just, you know, just before that 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 very critical tipping point. Well, before I move out of the 70s and into the 80s and beyond, uh, you write in the book about uh, watching the 1979 World Series. And I suppose in some respects, and you know how deeply I love this, and uh, even the title, Winning Ugly, which I know has is a wink and a, and a nod, uh, because... As I sit here and I thank you, because otherwise, I mean, what are you talking about, ugly? Although I'm looking at the cover of the book, and even I think that those Tampa Bay Devil Rays uh, uniforms were pretty ugly <laughs> in the beginning. <laughs> but the 79 series, um, maybe that's even kind of pushing it for me just slightly, because that was that was intense, that Baltimore Orioles-Pittsburgh Pirates matchup. I mean, do not adjust your dial. These are really the colors that you're seeing. Yeah, absolutely. And let me just let me back it up and say, you know, uh, this I, I kind of, you know, I, I put my my tongue firmly in cheek when I call these ugly, because uh, I think that rather than bizarre, I would I would say questionable, perhaps. And uh, I, I and I, I've been doing a lot of interviews, podcasts, and I made made a point uh, with somebody that I'll repeat it for your for you uh, and for our listeners here. Um, at one point, I had a, I used to have a bulldog, a big, white, ugly bulldog named Casey. And I'd be walking down the street with Casey, and people would come up sometimes and say, wow, that dog is so ugly. She's so ugly, she's beautiful. There's a paradox involved here, right? So ugly is in the eye of the beholder. And, uh, you know, the glory goes to those with, with, uh, with chutzpah, I think. <laughs> but getting back, to the, uh, getting back to the 79 series... Yeah, I mean, it, you know, looking at some of the matchups, uh, the Pirates rotating out their uniforms, as we discussed earlier, and the Orioles, who have always been a pretty, you know, pretty conservative club with those couple of uh, hiccups, the all-orange that we talked about before. But uh, they had orange, uh, alternate orange tops that they wore uh, in the series. And, uh, boy, when that orange was matched up against the, uh, the Pirates' uh, yellow-gold, that was uh, just in time for a little early start to Halloween in the the, the, the fall of 1979. And it, it, but it is interesting how the uniforms match up. I mean, you really see it in, a say, an NFL game, for instance. But you put Baltimore against the New York Yankees in those same uniforms, and I think that's a gorgeous game. You put the Pirates against the Dodgers, and I think that's a gorgeous game. But maybe maybe too much of a good thing in the 79 series. Yeah, it could be, but, you know, too much is never enough. That's the theme of the 70s, and for the last, you know, the last seven games of, uh, of the, again, the weirdest decade in our national history, somehow it was appropriate to see that kind of matchup. I think you're right. That's how it needed, that's how we needed to go out, uh, because the, the 80s <laughs> you know, were... You know, ball of, a ball of flames with disco <laughs> records being blown up and, and uh, you know, everything set on fire. I, I think it's that's perfect. it. Tonight we're going to party like it's 1979, right? So, <laughs> so you, you mentioned in the book that the Golden Age uh, ends, ends in 1987 and ends rather abruptly because I, I recall at the time in 1987 seeing these teams come out in spring training and, and in 1987, going back to the button-down look, going back to belts, uh, going back in, in several cases to much more traditional designs that harken back uh, to some degree to the team's past in some cases. And in other cases, they just came up with a more conservative uh, design. Now, we've, we've been in this state, I think, and I'm... I'm, I'm j- 
oversimplifying this, but we've kind of been in this state for about 30 years now, with the exception of the Devil Rays and the original Diamondbacks and the current Diamondbacks and uh, maybe some of the things the Marlins have done and a few other examples. But we, we, I feel like it's been fairly static for, for 30 years. Uh, do you think that we're... Well, first of all, before I get into the present and the future, what do you think happened there in 1987 where it was it was kind of like people decided, okay, well, enough of that nonsense, and order was restored. Well, a couple of things. I think that you cannot underestimate the fact that 1987 is, you know, it's right in the waning years of uh, the Reagan uh, presidency, uh, a more conservative time. Uh, everything kind of, you know, the pendulum swings and it's swung back to uh, to uh, a more buttoned-up look. 1987 is the era of Charlie Sheen and Wall Street and uh, greed being good and, you know, all this stuff going on. So I, I really do think that that's part of it. But I think a huge piece of the puzzle is the fact that in 1987, Rawlings signed on to become the first uh, uh, national uniform provider for Major League Baseball. Prior to then, you had uh, Wilson and Rawlings, for the most part, uh, going back and forth, and there were no uh, maker's marks on the exterior of the uniform whatsoever. But uh, Rawlings cut the, cuts the steel starting in 1987, and, uh, you know, presumably at that point, they kind of uh, provided a little bit more direction um, to, the, to the entirety of the major leagues, as opposed to, uh, the Twins are going to wear this, and the uh, Red Sox are going to wear that, and so forth and so on. 87, the White Sox lose their beach blanket uniforms, as we know them, you know, the, with the SOX straight across. Love them. The Astros lose their rainbow guns. Tragedy. Yeah, the Twins go to a very conservative look. The Mariners uh, go to a conservative look. The Braves basically become a throwback to the Milwaukee Braves of the 1950s. So the pendulum swung the other way, and as you, as you note, uh, we've, we've been pretty much right there for the last 30 years. The last uh, beltless and buttonless club uh, disappeared in the early 90s, and uh, you know we can discuss the future, but yeah, it's been a pretty steady period since then. Well, I, I want to talk about the future because, you know, I was doing a little bit of research for, for this podcast, and I'd like to, I want everybody out there to know, I, I do a little bit of research for this stuff, and I was, I, was, I was reading an interview that you did with Paul Lucas over at, at UniWatch uh, in 2008, and he asked you a question about the Memphis Grizzlies uh, design, and you observed... Uh, very correctly, it, it, with the benefit of hindsight, that uh, you know there was a trend towards s- simplicity and fewer stripes in the NBA at that time, or whatever that you were observing. And I hope that I'm giving a fair characterization to the answer. If you even if you even remember yeah, the the yeah. answer that I'm talking about, and, and and I think you still see it even today uh, in a lot of the designs in the NBA now. You know how much respect I have for you as a designer. Are there trends that you see in the industry where you can you can almost like see the the storm clouds gathering and you know what's coming and that we're going to kind of pass through a, a period where this is going to be the predominant thinking uh, that people have in in terms of creating visual identities and and if so, like where do we stand now in baseball? Is is is, are, are we going to be in this sort of static mode for the foreseeable future, or do you think that maybe sometime in the in the next ten years we could hit some sort of mini tipping point where some weird stuff starts to happen, or at least comparatively weird stuff starts to happen? Yeah, no, it's 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 a you make some really great points, and uh, I will say that you know uh, I began my design career doing stuff by hand before computerization, believe it or not. So the early 90s come along, and all of a sudden we have this, this new tool uh, that, that, that we can do anything with. We can have six colors. We can have six outlines. We can, we can gradate colors. We can do just crazy stuff. So the pendulum really swung way out there, and then I would say around the turn of the millennium, things kind of swing back, back toward a devolving of the graphics a simplification, as 
you said. And uh, we've been there ever since. But we've had a couple of things that have happened uh, since then. And again, society is part of this. We have had uh, we had nine uh, eleven, the tragedies of nine eleven, which we have kind of turned inward as a society. Our influences are not as global in a lot of respects from a design standpoint. Um, and then we get into the great financial crisis that started 10, 11 years ago, and uh, that gave us a lot of retro stuff that I think uh, I look at as comfort food. What happens when you're not feeling well? You want a big bowl of mashed potatoes and gravy, and uh, our sports teams gave us a lot of mashed potatoes and gravy, <laughs> and what that means is that we didn't have a whole lot of innovation. And now we move forward to 2018 and beyond, and we live in this digital age in which each and every one of us are scrolling, clicking, squirrel, what's that? Our attention spans are absolutely shot to hell, and this is going to reflect uh, in our sports uniforms. It's already started. I referenced the Oregon Ducks earlier, who really started this trend toward uh, a different uniform every game, which is pretty extreme. But in the case of the NBA, as you said before, Nike comes in and uh, we have absolutely done away with home and road designations for uniforms. The NBA, which is half the schedule of Major League Baseball, features so many different uniforms, it's really sometimes hard to, uh, hard to reconcile what two teams are playing. In the case of baseball, we've got 162 games in a season. There is a broad license for some uh, experimentation, but it depends on the franchise. I think that we are going to embark upon an era now where things are going to get shook up a little bit. Um, as of just last week at the time of our taping this, um, uh, Under Armour was, going, was all set to take on the contract to produce Major League Baseball uniforms uh, starting in the year 2020, then it was 2019. That fell apart, apparently, in the last week, and by all indications, Nike will be the supplier of choice oh, for Major dear. League Baseball. Oh, dear. I'm sitting yep. down, but I feel like I need to find a lower, more comfortable chair and sit down in that. <laughs> <laughs> because I'm learning this literally I, I, right now, and I'm worried. Well, well uh, all right, Ricky. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm prepared to come over there with smelling salt, <laughs> maybe a, a stiff belt of something to, uh, to calm things down. Um, but, I mean, I think that the, uh, it's probably safe to say that the traditional clubs, the Yankees, the Cardinals, you know, like they're going to look like the Yankees and the Cardinals five years from now. But who knows? Who knows? We could go back to uh, a lack of buttons. We could go to uh, sublimated printed patterns all over, a la the Diamondbacks. I have no idea. I'm throwing this out there. I will say that all of these things combined with one another – uh, probably lead to the conclusion that things are going to be different. Well, see, this is where you get into, I, I'm, you know, I'm kind of bored with the fact that things have been relatively calm for 30 years, but this is really a be careful what you ask for scenario, isn't it? Because, That's right. you know, the last time yeah. you were on the pod, we talked about the Diamondbacks and, you know, the, gosh, the catastrophe that was the bottom of their uniform pants, among other things, that they at least, they at least rolled that back. But I, I would like to see some changes, but isn't it like so many other things in the world? I would like to see changes, but only if, you know, maybe if you were in charge or, or I, or I had, a, or I, or I was in charge, I'd be okay with it. But I, I don't know about what uh, the, the folks at Nike are going to be cooking up. Maybe I, Maybe we're going to be doing a podcast in five years, and I'm going to be uh, uh, complaining and wishing that we could go back to the good old days of 2018. Yeah, you could, you know, vault green Yankees pinstripes, perhaps, <laughs> on, a, on a navy blue field with, with a glow-in-the-dark interlocking NOI. I have no idea. But uh, I think we're going to see more uniforms. But, you know, I mean, we always have to consider the fact that, uh, for better or for worse, the apparel uh, behemoths, uh, and, you know, I, I mean, it, it's, it's fair to say uh, they chase trends. Uh, they do not always uh, look toward uh, the long term uh, as part of the business plan. Um, they have to move units, and that is something to be reckoned with for sure. Um, I think part of this is also that we should talk about is advertising on uniforms. The NBA broke the seal with that, of course, this year. 
who knows what that means for baseball? I mean, um, you know, I, I do give the NBA some credit in the sense that uh, every one of those advertisements is subjugated to uh, secondary status relative to the team itself. They're, you know, in a certain place on the uniform, and they are a certain size, but I think you might wind up seeing this. Another interview I did with Paul Lucas, probably before the one that you just discussed, um, you know, I said, we're going to see it. We're going to see it. We're going to see it. And uh, I think it's closer. Are you surprised that we've made it this far without it? Yeah, I have. Because I think Major League Baseball, um, you know, they've been pretty good gatekeepers. Uh, they do have a properties division and an internal design department who, you know, I have a great deal of admiration for. They're clients of mine, too, just to throw a disclaimer out there. But uh, being the, the gatekeepers of the look of the game, I think they've done an exceptional job in holding back some of the uh, more egregious trends that we may have seen uh, in other sports. Standardized templates, for instance. Some of the weird things that you know happened in the NHL several years ago would be a good example. Um, you know, and respecting traditions where traditions should be respected. I don't think you want to uh, blow up the Dodgers' classic look or... You know, maybe, you know, the, the bold green Yankees that we just talked about, you can paint around the edges with some franchises, and in other cases, you have license to just, you know, tear the thing down, blow it up, and start from scratch. Now, now here, here's a question for you. Are we far enough past the 70s and 80s now that we might see some teams revert back to some of those looks as sort of an anti-traditional traditional. I mean, the Blue Jays in, in recent years have, have hearkened back uh, to somewhat to their, to at least to the, the, the 80s and 90s. The, the Orioles uh, went back to the cartoon bird in the, in the uh, white front panel. Are there, are there any teams out there that you think uh, at some point could uh, embrace their 70s or 80s visual identity on more than just a you know, every Wednesday night at home, that, that kind of basis, which is what we typically kind of see when teams do that. Yeah, I mean, you know, listen, I'll, I'll, first of all, I'll say I love what the Blue Jays did, I, um, I, you know, kind of reinventing themselves uh, with the future in mind, and uh, the, 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 the Blue Jays look of the, uh, of the early 2000s, uh, which is probably best forgotten, black, yes. graphite, or beveled, and all this stuff. The, the Blue Jays got it right. They really updated their classic look, which is one of my favorites of all time, that first one. Um, I think it's interesting to see what the uh, athletics have done in Oakland this year as they celebrate their golden anniversary in the East Bay. They introduced a Kelly Green alternate uniform, which uh, has just gotten such a great reception. The graphics are you know, substantially similar to what you'd see on their standard look, but that little bit of uh, kick in terms of color I think that might be a franchise that, that might want to uh, embrace their, their, their not-so-distant past and successful past as well. But uh, here, too, you know, the comfort food factor that I talked about just a little while ago, um, reintroducing what happened before just because you don't have something better to replace it with, um, I don't know if that's necessarily the answer. I think that the strands of DNA that connect Charlie Finley and the 1963 KCAs to today are there. Where how do you meet in the middle? Uh, make it relevant for a whole new generation of fans, and uh, do it for the digital age because all of these things have to. Uh, you know, I, I think our sense of color is is changed uh, over the last decade as we all stare at our phones and we look at uh, stadiums and arenas that are jam packed with really vivid LED lighting. You know, you have a really fun section in the book about the uh, turn ahead the clock uh, games that they that they had back in the the late 90s and those designs obviously were were pretty outrageous and since the clock has turned ahead now not quite to that what, what, were they turning the clock ahead to 2021 I believe yes it was in time? conjunction with century 21 okay. real estate well that's <laughs> well it only makes sense then <laughs> It's like 7-Eleven yep. sponsoring your, your 7-Eleven uh, start time uh, for a game. But yep. uh, 
obviously the uh, turn ahead the clock has not proved much like the movie Back to the Future. It is not proved uh, to, to be an accurate depiction uh, of the future. But if if we had to look ahead, I'm I'm going to ask you to turn ahead the clock uh, about twenty years, and this is really. Uh, well, heck, Todd, it doesn't matter. You can say whatever you want to. Nobody's going to find this podcast in 20 years probably anyway, so what do you have to lose? Uh, what do you think uh, maybe are, are one or two things that uh, will be a, a departure from what we know now if we're looking at Major League Baseball in, let's say, the year 2040? I think that the gun to my head, and I'll be in the old designer's home some two decades hence, <laughs> You can come visit me there, uh, wherever that might be, on Mars or something like that. Uh, we can enjoy a cold one or two. But uh, a couple of things. I, I, why, why do baseball uniforms have buttons, right? I, I think at some point we're going to lose the buttons, form and function. All of what we're seeing with every other sport, and we have seen it in baseball in terms of the, the weights of the uniforms. They're so much lighter than they used to be. How about texture on uniforms? Either shininess, which, you know, the, the uh, Seattle Mariners, uh, in their original uh, turn ahead the clock in 1998, they had these, these shiny batting helmets, large graphics. How about texture, a lack of buttons? Um, I think, you know, the, the sleeves are going to be the same uh, length for the most part. I think, you know, you'll, you'll probably have a return to the socks uh, as a, you know, a uh, big expanse of color at the south end of the uniform that we lost way back when. Uh, you know, when, when we started seeing the pajama pant look, right? Um, but I think you, you start with that, and who knows what we see after that. But why not start there? Is the NCAA the place to look for what's coming, or is that just a whole other kettle of fish? I think it's a whole other kettle of fish, and that is very market-driven. Uh, you know, the apparel companies are switching it up. There's all these derivative uniforms that are... Not groundbreaking at all. I mean, how many teams, like like you said before, Ricky, how many uh, you know mimic the the Houston Astros for no other reason uh, other than the fact that they were so friggin' awesome when they they were <laughs> when they were actually originally worn. There's no innovation there whatsoever. I mean, uh, they come and they go. I think the the laboratory has to take place on a, a level where the where the, the you know the, the players matter. Um, in a way that the minor leagues and college baseball don't. Don't forget, in both of those cases, any marketing that's done is is uh, all about the uh, you know the franchise rather than you know the players come and go. But uh, it's a little bit of a different thing in in the majors. Well, as as we come down the stretch here, I I wanted to ask you, what did you learn? from writing this book because I mean of, of, of everyone that I know and I'm friends with it, it, I think you're the guy who is the, who's the foremost expert in, in, in my circles uh, on this topic and, and on the topic of, uh, of graphic design and sports in general but in going through your research to put this book together uh, maybe what was a thing or two that, that, that you learned or, or, or that maybe your perspective changed on uh, just through the process of, of writing the book Great question, and I, I will tell you right away that you know part of the part of the I, I love to just disappear down these rabbit holes in research, and um, you know I looked at newspapers in incredible detail going back to the going back to the late 1860s when looking at the Cincinnati Red Stockings original look. So you know it, I learned a couple of things, but what really struck me and what really reinforced what I already knew was the level of scrutiny that uh, the media and the fans uh, placed upon their uniforms dating back to the earliest days of the professional game. I found letters that I reference in the book, which were just incredibly snarky. I talk about how, you know, could be a, a Twitter comment now. But uh, at, the, at the heart of it all, and I say this in here, baseball is a game that lends itself to introspection, the pace of the game is such that uh, we tend to focus on the visuals, uh, the length of the season. It starts in, you know, sound like A. Bartlett Giamatti here, right? In, the, in the, the, the middle of winter here in the Northeast, and it finishes up now in the, the first week in November. But um, what I really found was, like I said, that, that people have cared about their visuals uh, in a way that goes beyond uh, brand loyalty for any other consumer product, if you want to look at it that way. 
and and people have really cared about this since you know for 150 years. This is a complete non sequitur, but I have to tell you, the tickets that you did this year for the Detroit Tigers, amazing. Oh, thank you. I did the uh, White Sox last year, and uh, two very different projects. The tickets that you're talking about focus on the 50th anniversary of the Tigers, uh, much beloved 1968 uh, World Series winning club. And, hey, you know, we're talking about the 60s and the 70s quite often here. Uh, you know, if you, could, if you could look back at a particular year or era to emulate graphics and really look back to, uh, 68 was a great thing to sink my teeth into. So, Todd, the book is Winning Ugly, a visual history of the most bizarre baseball uniforms ever worn. It's a love letter to baseball uniforms, I think, in in, in some respects. Uh, available at fine bookstores everywhere, I, I take it. Yes, and, and as we say on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, and wherever books are sold. <laughs> well, if you love baseball uniforms, if you if you love baseball logos, if you just love baseball, period, I think it's a must-own. I encourage everyone, get out there online or hop in a car, go to a bookstore, which is always a good thing to do. Pick up a copy of, yeah. of Winning Ugly. What a pleasure having you back on the podcast. You now stand alone as the uh, only three-time guest in the history of the podcast, and we're definitely going to make it a four-time and five-time guest, uh, I'm sure, as, as time goes on I, I wish you all the success in the world with this book and everything else that you have going on and i look forward to the next thing that you're going to do ricky i can't tell you how much i appreciate it you are a kindred soul it's been a great conversation and i might need to make a logo for the uh, three-time uh, appearance and, and leave some room left over for some additional numbers all right i love it i think that's a great idea and what else can i really say todd radom a friend of the podcast a mega-talented individual, and the author of Winning Ugly, a visual history of the most bizarre baseball uniforms ever worn. I promise you, if you are a fan of Super 70 sports, if you love baseball uniforms, if you love old-school 70s and 80s era baseball uniforms, he's got you covered in a big way with this book. So make sure you get out and pick up a copy. You will not regret it. Until next time, this is Ricky Cobb telling you to never miss an episode of the Super 70 Sports Podcast.